My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. As per usual, I'm Jamie Keach, your host, and today we are talking to a gentleman that many of you will be familiar with, George Salamis, the president and CEO of Integra Resources. Now, some of you with a keen memory will know I've already spoken with Steve DeJong, who is the CEO of Verify and the chairman of Integra Resources. And in case you're wondering about repetition, you're not going to hear it today because George and I started talking with a very specific purpose in mind. He recently released a truly excellent, truly interesting article titled The Art of Junior Mining M&A, Lessons Learned from M&A in the Junior Mining Space. And this is a catalog of his personal experience selling and being involved in the transaction of six different companies. George has had a tremendously interesting career, and along the way, he has garnered a tremendous amount of lessons that are of extreme value um, for myself. I can speak personally that I learned a lot from reading this article and chatting with George, but also any other junior mining CEO or management team that is looking to set their company up for success for a potential transaction down the road, and just as importantly and perhaps more interestingly to our audience, for investors that want to position themselves in companies that are primed for a takeover. I know a lot of people, um, including myself, think about this when we're investing in early stage companies. Is this company going to be taken out by a major or a mid-tier down the road? And what does it take for that to happen? And in this conversation, we get into the nitty-gritty of that. I would highly, highly recommend that anyone listening to this first checks out this article. It's included in the show notes. Click through to it. It's on the Integra uh, Resources website. It is under the President's blog. It is truly a great read. And then come back here, listen to the things that George and I are talking about, and this will really help to put everything into context. George is a guy that has had decades of experience in this sector. And what really impressed me about him is he seems to truly care about mentoring and passing on knowledge to the next generation of executives and technical people, but also investors in the space and setting people up to win. Um, I found this conversation personally very helpful, and I think that all of our listeners are really going to get a lot out of it. So, After that very long and somewhat rambling introduction, let me please introduce George Salamis, the CEO of Integra Resources, where we discuss the art of junior mining M&A. George, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim. So we are sitting downtown in your office um, on Burrard Street overlooking the water. And we're here today to talk about Integra Resources, uh, M&A in the space, and what's led you and your team here so far? 
So for our listeners that are not familiar with George Salamis and the Integra story, um, can you give us an overview of who you are, what you do, and what you're focused on today? Just the 30,000 foot view at this point, and we'll, we'll dive right into it in detail later. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the who I am aspects, and first and foremost, I'm a father of four beautiful girls, um, and I'm a geologist by background. And so that's taken me on, on a wild 30 year journey uh, in, the, in the mining industry. And uh, which has led me to where we're at today and, and what I do today. Essentially, I'm the CEO and president of Integra Resources, which was essentially spun out, if you will, um, of Integra Gold post-successful sale of the company almost two years ago. Okay. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, Integra Gold was sold for, I believe it was nearly $600 million Canadian That's to El Dorado. Yes. How did you, um, a lot of what I want to talk about today is that process, um, M&A, um, building up a mining company and then selling it off, making the decision between putting something into production or bringing in another team to do that, and how um, juniors, explorers, and development stage operating teams make these sort of decisions. But I think it's worth providing some background first about how you ended up working with Integra and, and what led you there. So you're a geologist by training. Mm-hmm. Um, Integra was a company at the time being run by Steve DeJong, who is your partner, uh, both here uh, and as well you're involved in Verify. And for those listeners who haven't heard it yet, I highly recommend you go listen to the podcast of Steve immediately after this, where we talk in, in more detail about Verify. So. Let's talk about how you ended up starting to work with Integra and coming on as the chairman of the company. Sure. Um, so Steve, essentially about almost five years ago to the day, uh, he was handed the, the reins of Integra Gold, uh, being a, a young CEO, um, you know, passed on the, the, uh, the leadership of the company uh, from, from father to son. And, um, you know, unlike a lot of young CEOs who would have at that point just essentially said, I'm going to do what I think is right for this company. I've got a clear view and I'm going to do it myself. Um, Steve bucked the trend and, and he really sat down and said, OK, this is this is where I would love the company to go. But these are the gaps or the deficiencies I have right now in getting in realizing that dream. So. Um, he did that, you know, through what I think is a lot of self-analysis, which is great for a young person uh, at that stage in his career, and approached me on the basis of this is what I need. These, I need somebody to uh, move me through the, the minefield of, of building up an asset. Um, the, this is where I think the asset can go. Uh, this is the niche that I think that we can fill. This is what I think we're on to in Valdor, northern Quebec with the asset. But these are the key ingredients that I'm, I'm missing. And can you, George, help me navigate these waters? And uh, it was so refreshing to see somebody at that stage in their career basically uh, approach uh, a, a situation with, with that blank a sheet, if you will. What, what I actually find interesting about that particularly is that you tend to see people um, sort of place us. 
Steve is in his late 20s at Correct. this point. Yes, that's right. He is not a technical person. Uh, he's not an accountant. He's got a business degree. He'd worked on several deals before, investor relations and other roles, and now he's taken his first really big step up. And I have noticed people in that role, people tend to go to one of two ways. They tend to be very unconfident and submissive at that age, and they're kind of looking around, waiting for other people to figure it out. Uh, now, typically those people don't become CEOs, or they're extremely overconfident and um, convinced of their own genius a lot of times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've had friends and colleagues, and I've seen that a lot. And it's unusual to, for someone at that age to have the confidence to take on that sort of role, but also the perhaps self-awareness to realize they don't really fully know what they're doing yet and to build that support network and team and whatnot around them. Yes. So you are a geologist. Uh, what were the things that you came in to help? You know, what, was the, what were the strengths you were brought in to lend to that team? Uh, I mean, primarily my familiarity with that asset or that jurisdiction. Uh, it's where I started my career in, in the late 1980s, uh, straight out of school, straight into working at a mine uh, in northern Quebec, which ultimately became the location where Integra Gold <coughs> had all of its success. And so it was that familiarity with, with, with the lay of the landscape, the people um, in that area. Um, and also, having taken assets from a, a junior stage or, or an early stage up to an advanced stage where you know, a company is actually ready to make a decision to build or not, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of that before. So those, those ingredients were pretty key to joining the, the team, the Integrable team, for me. What stage was the asset at project at when you came on? It had uh, a few hundred thousand ounces of, of high-grade gold. Certainly there wasn't enough critical mass there to really contemplate building anything at that point. Um, but all the other ingredients were there. It, it, you know, it, it ticked all the boxes of it has you know, the right infrastructure, it has community support, it has a legacy and a history of, of past production. All of those things that I feel are really key ingredients uh, for a good project, it had all of those. So something that interests me is how did Steve um, reach out to you? How did he get in touch with you on this? It was through uh, a common friend of ours, uh, a friend who we went to university with, Ryan King. Okay. And I don't know if you know Ryan or not. I don't. Ryan, Ryan is the, the ultimate sort of networker in our business. And, and so he, uh, he put us together and uh, it, it was essentially one meeting where we sat down and, and it was, this is what I need, George, can you help me out? and uh, the rest is history. And you were sold on this project right away? I was sold on the project. I was equally sold on the fact that I'm sitting in front of somebody who I know can be great, who's got little or no ego. And to your point earlier on, you know, you've met two types of people who start out their careers early in, in getting a company off the ground. It's either, you know, that person um, is not confident, they're not sure of themselves, and runs into issues, or they're overconfident and they crash and burn. They hit a wall. And I and I didn't see either of those two traits in Steve. I saw somebody who's playing it straight down the middle, um, understanding and realizing what it is he needs to get the job done, and and filling the gaps where he needs to. 
So let's talk a little bit about how the process went at Integra. You, you come on, you're there to expand the resource, help build out the team. How does it look over the next several years that eventually led to this, um, this acquisition by Eldorado? Yeah, it was, it was a typical sort of startup junior company. You know, it was a roller coaster ride of, you know, good results one day, not so good ones the next. And, and um, understand that this was nuclear winter in the, in the, in the resource business back then. It yeah. hasn't changed much since then. Yeah. I think we should probably uh, put that, that uh, caveat in there. Uh, but it, it was a wild ride. The things that Quebec has going for it specifically is the low cost of capital raising raising money in Quebec. There are funds that are set up who can only invest in Quebec mining stories. Um, only the, mining, only mining in Quebec. Only mining and exploration in Quebec. Really? Um, yeah. So that there's sort of there's a built-in audience that you can always rely on to to to, to fund your exploration uh, like nowhere else on the planet, and so that made things um, easy-ish. Mm-hmm. For us, in during that period of sort of the, the nuclear winter of uh, four or five years ago, um, and then a couple of key things happened. We started to to hit on the exploration side, um, you know, some some really noteworthy results that required us to start relooking at um, our interpretation of of that gold deposit, and. Uh, Essentially, what that led to is is bringing on people um, to add to the existing phenomenal people who were there, who did a complete reinterpretation of of those results that led to the discovery of triangle, essentially the triangle deposit and what that meant, and that was a game changer for us. Um, you know, picture that you're looking at, uh, you're you're trying to describe uh, an elephant with uh, while you've got you know blinders on, and you're you're feeling your way. You know, around this might be an elephant, might be a buffalo, might be a cow. We don't <laughs> yeah. know, um, but all of a sudden, taking those blinders off and saying, "Okay, this is what I have. This is the elephant. This is what it looks like." Um, and then for us, you know, the, the the real momentum started at that point. So once you discovered triangle, once you really started to have an understanding of what you were dealing with there, how long was it before um, the majors and the potential acquirers started knocking? Maybe first as a strategic investor, but later to come in and take out uh, Integra Gold. The the real attention would have started uh, from from the corporates or the majors about two years before we actually sold the company, and um, that was a process. And, it, and we, I mean, we we drove a lot of that, and it's a, and it's a supremely important uh, part of any junior mining company's playbook should be to keep the corporates engaged at all times, keep them on a level playing field. Uh, that said, we did have some external help from some, um, some investment banks who helped drive that process as well along the way. Um, there were a number of investor tours that always started in Valdor and started our, at our asset and went on to other assets. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was also very uh, critical and key in our success because they were starting out looking at one of the best deposits in Canada, and then everything else on their trip or their tour were was always compared against <laughs> Integra Gold so and it was Triangle. Anticlimactic after that, by design. And you were one of the few companies that were funded well enough to actually be proceeding with work and to continually coming out with new results and increasing the resource and, and all the things you need to be doing at this stage. Correct. Yes. So, this is not, as I understand it, the first asset you've ever sold. 
or been involved in the sale of? No, I've been uh, I've been fortunate, lucky. I think uh, lucky is probably a better a better descriptor for that. And you know, I always feel it's better to be lucky than good in this business. Um, but I've been involved in the sale of, of six companies in the last fifteen years, and um, you know, I've seen a lot. And you know, the, the experiences that I've gained through having a front row seat to all of this have uh, not all been rosy. I mean, there, you know, there have been some tough situations along the way, but uh, yes, I have been involved in, in six uh, junior M&A transactions. So I'd like, to, I'd like to talk about that in a bit more detail, but you know, first, I'd, I'd like to get an understanding of what I think is something a lot of people in, in our profession think about, and especially younger people uh, contend with, is how do you go from being a geologist at either a major or, or a junior company, you know, your logging core, you're out doing field work, to actually taking on a corporate role in these sort of um, in these sort of companies, and how do you make that transition? How did how did you personally make that? Yeah, um, it, it, I have to say it, it was by design. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that I had dues to pay. Um, and I just to take a step back, I come from a mining family, and uh, I watched specifically uh, my dad, who's who's a great mining man of his own right, you know, pay his dues. Uh, I, you know, he he enjoyed being in the field. I enjoyed being in the field. Then there came a time uh, in my career where I said, okay, 15 years of paying my dues in the field is probably good enough. Um, I need to move my my orientation to something that's different um, you know I've got a, a few good ideas on what to do and what not to do in the exploration space and yeah. so why don't I parlay that into a career in junior mining and um, you know that that transition for me happened in and around sort of 2000 2001 when I made that shift from major mining company to junior mining company and, and that was going from the corporate world to the to the wild west if you will yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I have to say, I, you know, I, I certainly do not regret that decision. It was a great decision. So when, um, so when you were with the majors, I believe you were with both Placer Dome and Cameco. Is that's, that right? That's correct. Yeah. So when you were there, what, what was your role? Were you a project geologist out, you know, running drill programs and looking for new targets and, and that sort of thing? It certainly started out that way. Um, and you know when I when I waved the flag uh, with Placer specifically of you know throw at me as much travel and 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 uh, experience as you can, um, they took me seriously and you know sent me around the world and I you know I lived I uh, spent a lot a long time on the road just working on various projects lots of different projects in different parts of the world it was a great experience for me and and I think that ultimately was was key to um, Getting me here, where we're at today. I mean, the, the diversity of experience, the diversity of um, characters and individuals that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that there's no there's no price tag to that. It's uh, it was phenomenal, um, and it's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm hammering on this point a little bit because often I, I get emails or I meet with people, a lot of geologists that. You know, they're around my age. Uh, they've pretty much only existed in a bad market. Um, <laughs> yeah. And employment has been very sporadic for a lot of them. Uh, you know, they'll have a field season on and a winter off and there'll be this and that. And, 
you know, scrambling to get jobs, many, many people. And people are trying to, I think it's very difficult to figure out how to plot a career in this industry where there's so much uncertainty about what type of jobs will be available, if any, that year, and how you actually build up responsibility and experience so that you can take that step into first a leadership technical role and then perhaps a corporate role. Um, I don't think there was a question in there. No, I, oh, I, I've, got, I've got a view, and it's pretty strong on that topic. Please, yeah. And, and it starts with, uh, it, is, it is really unfortunate that that is the nature of the business. It's the, it's the boomer bust um, cycle that, that it relates to our business specifically. I do believe that uh, our universities, the learning institutions that teach you how to be an engineer or teach me how to be a geologist, um, are, are in essence providing a tremendous disservice to us all. What typically happens in a cycle is the cycle will take off by the time the universities figure that out, you know, they're starting to recruit, yeah. right? Yeah. And by the time, you know, you as an engineer or myself as a geologist graduates, um, that cycle is off, the bloom is off the rose. Mm -hmm. And instead, in, uh, instead of being in sync with, with the cycle, they're, they're completely off sync with the cycle. Um, to add to that, I don't believe that uh, universities give us the proper tools that we need to, to be employed. I would uh, agree with that wholeheartedly. I, uh, I don't think, I mean, I use about 1% of my engineering degree on any given day. Um, you know, I don't do a lot of uh, advanced calculus and calculating <laughs> integrals and polar coordinates and, and that anymore. Don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's interesting you say that because when I graduated university, so we st I started in 2003, um, sort of at the beginning of a bull market. I think in my graduating class there was 10 people in 2007 or 8. Um, we, we graduated into a very big bull market, um, which shortly crashed thereafter. Mm -hmm. But I know in 2012, uh, I met some people from the program I'd been part of, and I think there was 50 to 100 people in the class. And it, it, it grown to five to 10 times in the course of a few years. And they were all graduating into, I believe it was 2013 at the time, into a crumbling market where, right. yeah. and. To be honest, I don't know what they were doing. I found a hard enough time having one or two years experience and seeing things crash around me compared to someone with no experience and the bottom of the barrel for the hiring list, unfortunately, for most companies. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get off this topic now <laughs> and on to uh, merrier things. Yes. When you, when you started working for the junior companies, um, you know, what was your first introduction to M&A, uh, into being acquired, into dealing with uh, the potential acquirers and the bankers and the, the funds or the strategics and all these players that often play a role in this sort of thing that is a very... So I got exposed to this a few years ago with the company that became Equinox Gold and we went through a series of mergers and acquisitions and coming from a technical background it was something I had no idea whatsoever of what we were doing and I was very lucky to work for a very experienced team on that and get to see first a great team. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time but I've been very grateful for that. So. How did you get introduced to this and what were some of the things you learned throughout these processes and sort of, I guess, uh, mistakes made and lessons learned and how has it affected the way you do things now? Probably starting with, with the, uh, 
the very first M&A transaction or the lead up to that very first one was a was a Swedish company and it's a it's a company that you know with with a strange name Radar Hidden Resources it's a Stockholm listed company that at the time uh, nobody knew about um, I was first introduced to this company uh, the Swedish company while I was working for Chemical Corporation so we were looking at actually making an investment in them and um, I, I completed a, a field visit to their site in northern Finland, came back to the office in Toronto and said, look, this is a, this is a phenomenal opportunity. We need to get involved in this tomorrow. You know, tried to go to bat with my boss at the time to really justify a case for backing this team, which were a bunch of essentially Swedish uh, geologists and engineering types, very good ones. And um, our, my boss wanted no part of it. And so I was so convicted at the time and seeing the writing on the wall with Cameco that, you know, the, the axe is going to come down here pretty quickly. Yeah. I was trying to, for the first time in, 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 my, in my career, make the transition to the junior mining world, but choose my destiny. And so um, when the axe finally came down with Cameco, I, you know, I went to Ritter Hayden, the Swedish company, and I said, look, I think I can be of help to you. Um, you know, please consider taking me on in, in, a, in a, both in a technical capacity, but also in a, in, a, in a directorial capacity at the board level, because I think I can, I can be of a lot of value to you in the, in the context of the North American capital markets, because I was just starting to get involved right. with that. And how, how old were you at this point, just to place Oh, us. man. Um, it seems like an eternity ago. So I would have been 26, 28. Okay, so quite young. Yeah, yeah. And um, so they they uh, they took a chance on me. And uh, sorry, that's that's a pun, that's a Swedish pun. That's a name of a <laughs> it's a name of an ABBA song. But I figured <laughs> I figured we'd throw one of those in there for the just for uh, giggles. But um, this was the first time when I started to deal with some very sort of smart operators. And this is where I get to the point of if you're going to set up a company um, properly that's going to lead into an M&A process, you need somebody who's at least one person around that you can count to for that experience. Someone who's done it before. Somebody who's done it before. And um, in, in that process, there was one individual in particular who, um, who was on the board and who didn't know much about mining at all, but knew how to play the game in other businesses. And there are, you know, mining is mining and, you know, industries are industries, but there are crossover elements in all businesses. So was this gentleman a banker by trade or uh, what was his bat? What, how did he have that experience to understand how to position these companies for, for takeout? He was, uh, he was in the retail business. Okay. And so he had a, owned a number of, of retail businesses in throughout Scandinavia that did quite well. And he was also in the finance business as well. Um, he, he took me under his wing uh, fairly early in the process. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that this was a time in the, in, in the gold cycle that was the lowest of the low, we're talking sort of $270 an ounce prices where nothing really worked. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he had he had faith in the team. He had faith in the asset that we were going to find more and grow a resource base, which was at the time three hundred thousand ounces, which I believe we ended up selling at the three million ounce mark to Agnico Eagle. Ultimately, um, 
he was a very cool character and never lost his cool, never lost sight of the objective. Um, and it always helps to have somebody like that on, on the team in, in the setup for M&A and in the, uh, in the resulting M&A negotiation process. So I think that's very interesting. Um, the idea of designing the structure and the strategy of the company from the beginning so as to make make an acquisition an option should that be what you choose to do mm-hmm. what were some of the steps that you learned from this gentleman that that companies or that you now consider and companies should be considering when they're first starting out to position themselves in a way that M&A is on the table down the road yeah so this individual his name is Jan Carver by the way okay. um, and uh, a very very smart individual um, like no one else I've ever met and seeing it for the first time was an epiphany for me he had the ability to sit down at the negotiating table with a major mining company look them in the eye and say look if you want to buy this that's great but if you don't want to buy this um, we can build this ourselves we have that option and uh, which we did have that option even though it was it was a, you know severely depressed uh, part of the, the gold cycle you know there there was scope for us to do uh, a project build in a much smaller way than a major would have done it but mm-hmm. one that would have been successful so let's dig into that for a second because not every junior has that option to build the project. Sometimes the capital costs are so restrictive to be unimaginable, right? That the amount of dilution that it would require to raise the hundreds of millions or maybe billions of dollars to put something into production uh, is an insurmountable task, or at least an insurmountable task and still have any value left over for shareholders. Mm. How do you... Does this come into effect when you're looking at projects that you want to be the CEO, be the chairman of, stamp your name on? Do you want to find, do you want a project that has the option to go into production? Should that be the scenario you either want to take or are forced to take due to market conditions at the time? Yeah, uh, that, that is the particular sweet spot of the project that I like, I typically like to get involved with. Um, you know, I tend to shy away from projects that, that you know, while uh, you know they might be world class uh, projects, if it's a project that smells of you know billion dollar capex, for for me there's there's that's a one way street for the junior getting involved in in such a project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the capex uh, nut to crack on that one is is insurmountable. Well, it's it's interesting, and it's not something I had previously thought about earlier in my career, but. When I was an engineer at Hatch, uh, we worked on a project called the Mary River Project. It's a giant iron ore mine up in Baffin Island in, mm-hmm. in uh, Nunavut, Canada. And it was run initially by a company called Baffinland. Yes. Uh, but that it got, they got bought out at not the best price, um, if I can remember correctly, by uh, ArcelorMittal, the steel giant. But the capex associated with this project, and I think off the top of my head, it's was six billion dollars you know they had to build railways they had to build roads they had to build a mega pit they had to build state-of-the-art ice-breaking ore shipment vessels like things that no small mining company could even begin to think about um, 
And that, that really eliminated in the, the earlier the deal stage their optionality because not only could they not do this sort of thing themselves, there were probably only three or four companies in the world that could do that sort of thing. These, you know, who wants that much iron ore for one and who wants it up in Baffinland and there's only a few steel majors and mining majors that could do it. So what are the characteristics that you look for in a company that will give you as a junior operator, the optionality to to sort of choose your own destiny on it. Yeah, it, it all comes back to that optionality ultimately. So if I look at the the six uh, M and A transactions that I've worked on in the last uh, fifteen or so years, you know, the key a key hallmark to five out of the six has been the fact that the company has had the option to. You know, build and um, and operate that mine because it's financially within their means to do so. Or there's a there's a bigger scenario, which is perhaps the appeal to the the larger mining company, which is we can actually you know there's a scenario to build this much bigger and get to a scale that is no longer within the the means of the junior, but it is certainly within the means of the major. Mm -hmm. It's that optionality that that is is a key aspect of what I what I need to see in a project that I get involved with. Is there a ratio that the capex to the market cap is too big for to do it yourself? You know, if you're a call it a fifty million dollar uh, exploration or mining company, you know, how big can you actually go there? Can you can you put a hundred million dollar, five hundred million dollar? Like, wh where does it stop in your view? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that ratio depends on market factors largely. What what the mm. market's willing to bear at the time, how the company's being valued. You know, the availability of capital, debt and equity, quasi debt. Um, there are a myriad of, of, of features that that feed into that. Um, boiled down. You know, a $50 million market cap company that's trying to raise a half a billion dollars of capex, well, that, you know, that's a scenario that we've seen too often that ends in tears. You know, the shareholders are disgruntled, or excessive dilution, excessive debt load on the company. You know, the, the companies like that really don't have much, much of a hope in surviving. What is the importance of bringing in a strategic investor at this stage of a company? Oh, it's huge. Um, and maybe for those who don't know at home, define what a strategic investor is, if you can, please. Yeah, uh, strategic investor, and you see it, it's not just in the mining business, it exists in many other industries, but it's essentially uh, you know, a big brother, um, if you will, who uh, enters uh, your share capital, becomes a, a shareholder of the company, Somebody that you can rely on for future financing, somebody who's who might provide you with some tech elements of technical expertise that you don't have on your own team, um, and you know. Last but not least, it's it's the ultimate informata or, or or certification for what you're doing. If a major looks at your project and and says, "Well, this project has merits, and I like it so much that I'm going to invest." 5, 10, 15, 20 percent, whatever that might be into it. That's a good market signal that you're, you're on to something that's, that has a shot. So it really validates what you're doing Correct. there, right? Yeah. You get the XYZ Corp stamp of approval on Correct. it? Correct, yes. So we're seeing a lot of that these days. Uh, majors taking these smaller chunks of companies, be it 5, 10, 15 percent. I think that is a good segue into sort of a broader conversation about 
What do you make about what's going on, or what do you make of, of what's going on in terms of M&A in the gold space right now? Obviously, you've got a lot of experience there, but in my career, I haven't seen the sort of the scale, this scale before, these mega mergers between the Gold Corps and Newmonts and the Rand Golds and Barracks and, you know, potentially uh, <laughs> at one point Newmont bidding for, for, for or rather, Barrick bidding for Newmont. Have you seen this before and what do you, what do you make of this? Um, so in, in 30 years, I haven't seen it on this scale mm. and that's what's got me really excited about what's, what's been going on of late. I mean, there were, there were times very early on in my career when Placer Dome, that's a classic example, right? Placer Dome is the amalgamation of Placer and Dome, two, two very large Canadian mining companies who decided to join forces. Uh, two very large mining companies with absolutely different skill sets. One was more of an open pit miner, the other <coughs> one was more of a high-grade underground miner. So, you know, this was a, a marriage of, of two different skill sets and it worked out actually quite well up until the end. Um, what's got me particularly excited about this round is that we've, we've got the very largest of the gold mining companies deciding to join forces. That to me is a sign of capitulation. Individually within these companies, they're saying to themselves, there's the only way I can grow my production profile or at the very least maintain it is by joining forces with somebody else. I can't fill that exploration pipeline internally. There's not enough, there, are, there are not enough projects coming up within my own pipeline to f fill that void, which is right. coming. And so therefore, I'm going to you know, get together with a Newmont or a Gold Corp and, um, or a Rangold. And uh, that's a clear sign of the scarcity of assets out there. Do you have a view on what the sort of the next stage and, and what I think of as the sort of trickle down effect that this will have? Does it mean next we're going to see potentially these majors buying up mid tiers to add to their portfolio? Or are they going to skip that step altogether uh, and try to find undeveloped massive assets, you know, or, or really start deploying capital into exploration stage companies? Well, I think you know to the to to the latter point. Are they going to start deploying capital into uh, to the explorers? I, I think they have no choice. Yeah. Um, really, you know, the the majors have been counting on us juniors to fulfill that role for them. You know, being their exploration proxy essentially, and, and finding them assets because history has proven, you know, certainly over the last thirty years that I've been in the business, that that nobody. Um, nobody is better at finding gold deposits than the juniors, mm -hmm. ultimately. So they're going to have to depend on us, ultimately. Addressing the sort of what happens next aspects of, of where this M&A is heading, you know, what I think is, you know, the next tier down of companies, the mid-tier producers, you know, they're going to be pushed into the abyss of irrelevance pretty quickly here. In other words, you know the investment crowds, the you know the the, the 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 funds that really put a lot of money into the sector will go for the big dogs, mm -hmm. the amalgamated companies with the the ten million <coughs> ounce per uh, per year per year production profiles, and so that that now relegates the mid tiers to the okay the the, the second tier of an, of investment grade. So what what do they do? Do they start merging with each other and get to a scale, or they start to be on the radar of these bigger? these bigger uh, financiers, 
or do they dwindle into <laughs> oblivion? Into oblivion? Yeah. I, th I, I don't think they have a choice. I think they, they'll have to do something uh, along the lines of joining forces, yeah. nationalizing assets, um, that sort of thing. Okay. I mean, in theory, um, the mid-tiers tend to have the second-class assets in general. They often, you know, if they have the, the truly world-class tier one assets, generally they get picked up pretty quickly by one of the majors at a premium because, you know, there are only so many 10 million ounce gold deposits in the world that, that they can actually find. Does, and I, I guess I'm just being hypothetical here, but does a multi-multi-billion dollar gold company, we'll say, of second or third rate assets make sense? Or is it, or does it make more sense to be to maintain these smaller, leaner companies that are maybe able to eke out um, value of these things that a bigger company couldn't? Well, this, the smaller, leaner uh, sort of one-asset companies, while mm -hmm. they're great, um, they don't tend to attract a lot of investment attention. We've seen that historically. Um, you know, the 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 eighty to hundred thousand ounce a year producer. You know that might make good coin, might make great great margins. In the end of the day, uh, you know it's 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 a bit of a pass for the uh, for the generalist investor. I mean, th those companies have their rationale and their their reason for, for for being, but you know it's truly the sort of the, the larger scale producers, uh, you know, asset mines, if you will, the hundred and fifty plus thousand uh, uh, ounces per year production profiles that attract the attention. Today, you're the CEO of Integra Resources, which is the, I think of it in my mind as Integra 2, it's the 2.0. Uh, you've got the Delamar project in Idaho in the US. What are you guys doing there and how does this, how does that project fit into your vision of the space? Yeah, um, great, great place to, a great analogy or a bit, a great sort of uh, compass, if you will, to, to answering that question is, is taking a step back and, and looking at what's out there. And we did, we did a screen very recently inter internally, which was we looked at um, the, a number of, the number of projects worldwide that are in excess of a million ounces. And I think that number was 400 or 400-ish. 400 um, and then we cut that screen down to three and a half million ounces. And then that number became 100-ish. And then we then put a, a filter or a screen of how many of those projects are in um, you know, a tier one investment environment, but Canada, the US, you know, maybe Phil Mexico <coughs> in there and, and Australia. And then that number goes to, I believe it's, it was 20 or 30. And then add the filter of, of the USA, which is a great place to, to be operating low risk environment. Um, and then that filters down to very quickly, I think it's less than 10. So there's a scarcity out there. And, and that is what Integra is setting itself up for. When that scarcity gets recognized, segueing back to the, you know, what the majors need, the majors, once they digest themselves after swallowing each other, they will be looking to you know, maintain that production profile, you know, seven to 10 million ounces. They're going to need a lot of you know large-scale production profiles to uh, to to maintain that, and so we're we're positioning ourselves uh, for that point when when the market 
figures that out and the majors figure that out. And I reckon it's probably two to three years from now. So what are some of the steps you're taking uh, internally to put yourself in the position that you'll have the options you want when that time comes? It, it's essentially, it's, it's playing from that same playbook that we had in Integra Gold, which was, you know, prepare, prepare, your, prepare an asset um, to meet that demand when that demand comes. And, you know, that doesn't always have to be an expensive exercise. You know, studies don't cost a lot of money, ultimately. Um, and and so, so you don't need to spend a lot of money to be relevant to position yourselves to be in, in that um, in that sort of circle, if you will, of, of preparing yourself. And that's what we're doing at Integra Resources. We're, we're de-risking an asset that has a very large resource base, which will be enviable to somebody someday. But we're not playing this game with only one potential outcome. Like the Integra playbook, plan A is we can build and operate this on our own at a scale that fits us, or there's the dream big scenario. This is larger, this is bigger than Mount Everest, and it's something that only the, the major could afford, and it gets them to the production profile that they desire, and that becomes the plausible plan B. So for those who have never been part of an M&A negotiation, uh, once you get to a stage, or in past assets when they've gotten to a stage, that you're starting to sit down with the majors and the, the bigger mid-tiers, what does that actually look like? It's um, it's a dance. Uh, it, it, it's a dance. It's something that ebbs and flows. The the majors uh, come and go. They'll disappear. Uh, they'll come back uh, with with a vengeance. Usually around an uptick in a market cycle or in in uh, you know coinciding with some good news or both on the project. Um, it's it's a process that you you know one needs to manage very carefully and uh, you know I, I can't say loud enough to the young C mining CEOs out there in preparing your company to do that ensure that there's an equal and level playing field in terms of the distribution of your data amongst um, amongst your potential corporate buyers or your sponsors always ensure that everybody's up up uh, up the curve to the same level that's looking at you and that involves a lot of work. Is this is this a problem that you see happening quite often? That how, how does that how does that go wrong? Is it certain groups have more access to data than others, or people do a bad job at building out a a data room that is able to provide the information that is necessary to make a proper evaluation of the project? Where do you see the failures there? The the, the failures are primarily in 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 sort of the latter point that you mentioned. You know, not not putting together a proper data room and not bringing everybody up to speed at all times. Um, I've seen cases, not, not in one specifically that I've been involved with from a management or even a sort of director's perspective, but there are other cases that I know of where you will get a CEO um, with a lot of ego who will say to hell with the major, I don't need you know, any of them, or maybe I'll deal with one, but I don't need to deal with the rest of you guys. And um, that usually ends in tears. How do you um, play the dance of, you know, discussing with several groups, keeping them all at the table, maybe doing a little bit of work to pit them against each other uh, to a degree, while still keeping everyone on good enough terms to remain part of the conversation? Well, first off, it's a lot of work. 
Yeah, uh, it's not an easy question. Yeah. It's not an easy question, um, and it's a lot of work, and it involves engaging your your team on site to to constantly be welcoming people through the door, um, and and it's you know it provides for a great amount of distraction, especially to the team on the ground that's constantly show and telling their the asset mm -hmm. but it is it is certainly very very necessary and getting getting your team on the ground to understand that this is part of your business model and a very important part of your business model is key uh, up front um, getting them to understand that I don't know if I answered that question I think so completely uh, you know I I understand there's probably no one answer right and each situation is going to be different but I think that's that's a good that's a good general sort of approach to it you know what I what I do want to talk about is uh, something that I don't hear mentioned very often which is the room for creativity in the mining industry I see I, I personally see geology as an incredibly I see good geology as an incredibly creative profession that really requires people to have a vision for things and to see things that other people don't mm -hmm. um, that is, I think, uh, inherent in any discovery, but also marketing a discovery, you know, building the story, uh, creating the communication networks, uh, giving a company the opportunity and the shareholders an opportunity to be either constructed or taken out at the best price possible. That requires some creative thinking, particularly in a bad market like we have seen and in a very, in a very fast-changing digital landscape that we're seeing today. You and Steve uh, have brought a lot of creativity to this aspect. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the steps you've taken from the Integra Challenge to net, what eventually the products that led to Verify and how you came up with them and, and the roles that this has played for you in you know, being a successful mining CEO and chairman and entrepreneur in general. Yeah, I think the, you know, starting out with um, a group that, you know, held, all, we all held the belief, you know, then this isn't just Steve and myself, it's, it's everybody within the organization that no idea is too crazy to consider. Um, let's throw a lot of ideas at the wall, see what sticks. Let's, let's put together um, what I always like to call a skunk works um, sub-organization within your own organization that just works on crazy ideas. What are we going to do next um, to, to set ourselves apart? And, and this, the key fundamental factor of, of, of this thinking is what are we going to do to set ourselves apart from the two and a half thousand other junior mining companies out there? How are we going to sell our story differently? What tools are we going to use to do that? And so uh, Verify, for example, came uh, was was born of that. Mm -hmm. That came from, you know, Steve going out on the road and, and making the Integra pitch, and me doing the same thing to a different crowd, and us coming back together and saying, "Gosh, did you see those those brokers that we were pitching to in that room? Their eyes rolled back in their head when we put that paper PowerPoint deck in front of them. They've seen ten of these today." They're not listening. Our story's not getting getting uh, getting downloaded in, in their own minds. What are we going to do to make that presentation uh, more real to mm -hmm. them? And that's how the the first stages of Verify were were um, 
were created. And that, that took the form of an Integra app, is that right? That's right, yeah. And so did it offer a lot of the same features that Verify offers now, This these essentially digital site visits that you're able to go and... Yes, I mean, Verify is now a much more evolved product than yeah. what, that, what that Integra Gold app was about. But the, the Integra Gold app, what, you know, that was the building block to what Verify is today. And Verify has just gone you know, ballistic in terms of the things that can do relative to that mm -hmm. original app. But that, the, the, the foundation was there. So I'm interested actually in what you refer to as your sort of internal Skunk Works team. What, you know, we'll use Integra Gold as the example. What, what did you put, who, who was part of that team and what did these meetings look like? Did you meet once a week or once a month? Did you have people from all levels of the organization? What a, how, walk me through how that actually worked, the setup and the structure. Yeah, it was it very much unscripted, mm -hmm. um, freeform meetings. Uh, you know, somebody would get an idea and, and then they would bring it up. Uh, at a meeting, again, usually informal, usually while we're eating a sandwich or having a beer, and um, then that idea would get flushed out, and we would quickly, you know, come to a conclusion that this this idea merits follow up, or no, it's it's beyond our means, or it's too crazy, or it won't work. Who who else was part of the, that discussion? The besides? entire team. Yeah. yeah, that was key. So, do you have any good examples of ideas you killed? <laughs> uh, let me think. Ideas that we killed. There wasn't like a Integra Gold blimp ever going to fly over Vancouver <laughs> or anything. <laughs> um, I mean, we were one of the one of the ideas that we killed, but it wasn't for the fact that it was a an outrageous idea. We just never got around to doing it. Um, was to set up Integra Gold and the site in Valdor as basically a test case for all these cool ideas. In other words, if you've got a great idea, come use our mining project to experiment. Mm. So this is new act new technology applications and Correct. new systems of doing things. We get we get a front row seat of what you guys are doing in exchange. We're giving you an actual ore deposit to work on and to test to test out your idea. Do you see anyone doing something similar to that? I mean, the Gold Corp Challenge, which obviously grew out of the Integra Challenge, or I'm sorry, I'm mixing that up. The Disrupt Mining uh, event, which obviously grew out of the Integra Challenge, is trying to encourage that sort of thinking, right? Bringing these new technologies into the space. They are, yes. Are you seeing them then systematically getting applied to an operation where you can where where people can measure the benefits and compare it to other things and to yeah I, I think Gold Corp uh, is doing a bit of that mm -hmm. I mean in the ideas that they are backing they are backing these ideas with finances and they're also saying you know come try this out on the you know the Campbell Red Lake mine yep. or, or you know one of the other mines that we have in operation um, I don't know that that's being done on the scale by anybody that will really show us any serious benefit. So what I'm talking about, about is, you know, lots of ideas being applied to a mining project and, and, and basically a group that just manages, you know, the test case for these new technologies and innovations, not just one at a time in sequence. Yeah. What are some steps, you know, if you were to start a new company today, a totally new team. Everyone, everyone here is gone. 
how do you start to develop that mentality of of thinking outside the box and looking for new ideas in a team? Does it all come down to hiring the right people, or can you can you improve those capabilities in the team that you have now? Yeah, I'm I'm still working off the shock of of your your premise of. Uh, you know, imagine that you're not working with this team and they're gone. <laughs> so I can't, I can't imagine that. I've got such a phenomenal team and we all get along so well together. Um, it, all, it all starts with putting to, together a group that has an open mind to everything. And, and gosh, one of the things that has absolutely floored me in the past in this business is the, the amount of closed-mindedness there has been or we have lived through in the mining business. I've worked with a lot of phenomenal people but I've also worked with a lot of people who make it a career of sitting there arms crossed and saying no we can't do that, no that's not possible um, and then the idea and the spark dies there. And so starting starting off the any new company with a, a group of open-minded individuals is key. Did I answer that question? Yeah, I'm thinking about the best way to respond. Um, I have two things in my mind and it sounds like that is not the norm, that's probably the exception. And do you think that was part of the thing that perhaps drew you to working with Steve and any younger CEO in general? This maybe a tendency to be more open-minded and less set in your ways and of course you know Steve's my generation growing up with technology being a bigger part of your life and understanding the importance of incorporating that into the industry. Oh absolutely and that's what attracted me to, to partnering up with Steve in the first place. I mean we, we have this kind of running joke when we um, you know either of us will get an idea and so, you know, we'll call each other up and we'll say, we'll start, we'll start the conversation with, hey Steve, or hey George, I have this idea. And the, and the canned response from both sides is, oh, okay, what is it today? <laughs> so, so we know that there's something coming down the pipeline that we'll have to sort of think about. Um, and that's great. It's never, you know, I don't want to hear your, your crazy yeah. ass idea. What percentage of these do you think get to a stage where they are, at the very least, seriously considered being put into practice? In terms of innovative ideas? Yeah. Oh, very small percentage. Very small. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, why, that's why, you know, the, the testing ground concept, if you will, um, needs to be done en masse and not in sequence. We're just not going to get up that technology curve fast enough if we just keep doing these things one by one. I want to talk about setbacks now. Um, Anyone who's had a career in the mining industry longer than six months <laughs> has probably had some major setback. This is particularly true, I would say, in the junior space where failure is very much the norm. Mm -hmm. And often even some of the best teams in the world consistently fail. When you are running a junior company, how do you, you know, you said earlier, You'd rather be lucky than smart in my industry. How do you expose yourself to luck and the potential for good things to happen, serendipity? And then on the flip side of that is when they very often don't, how do you control the downside of those failures and, and 
manage to bounce back from setbacks? It's a very long question. <laughs> uh, yeah, where do I start with that one? Um, probably start with starting with the failure aspects. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, failure is such a massive part of our business. I mean, the the failure rates of juniors is just astronomical. The, it's pretty much a hundred percent. It's pretty much a hundred percent. The uh, the evolution of a you know the first minor discovery of, of a metal showing to that showing becoming a mine, you know, is the 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 odds against are astronomical. And so you're dealing with fa uh, failure. So so you know understanding that failure is part of the business is a key and and uh, and taking lessons from that failure is also very critical. Uh, in terms of the people aspects of, of managing failure, and this gets down to, I think one of the, the, the points that you mentioned earlier, Jamie, was um, you know, the, the fact that mo most of the young people in, our, in the business in the last, who have joined in the last seven to 10 years join the business in absolutely the worst time possible, right? The, the, you know, a lot of people, as you said, haven't seen, you know, what a real ripping market looks like. Yeah. And so a lot of my job um, as somebody, you know, of age, <laughs> age, I believe I said that, um, an older member of the team, let's just say, um, has been to, to, you know, metaphorically ensure that these young entrants aren't aren't rushing for the exits and looking to jump out proverbial windows um, due to the gloom and doom of the markets. You know, keeping them motivated to keep yeah. pursuing, that's a big part of my career. Well, it's, it's very challenging to see the upside of something if you've never experienced it before. Yes, it is. You know, it's, it's very, I'm, I'm speaking for myself even, I'm 33. To see, I've worked with a lot of people that have made a lot of money and had very big successes. I've been part of some very successful companies, technically, and what they're doing on the ground, but there has never been a massive win in terms of share price mm -hmm. in the companies that I've worked for yet, and it hasn't had that opportunity, even though they're doing everything right. And you know, the guys that I've had the chance to work with, uh, you know, I think of one particular Marcel de Groot from Pathway Capital. Yes. He always says to me, he says, you know, Jamie, like when it happens, it just happens and you've got to have done everything right up into that to position yourself for it. But when it happens, it happens. And I believe it and I've seen it. I've seen the result of that. But it is it is sometimes hard inside to feel that because sure. I've never actually been a part of that uh, while working for the company. Yes. So how do you how do you how do you keep people optimistic and build that image uh, or that vision of what can become in the right circumstances or in the fullness of time? Yeah, and, and to, to Marcel's comment, that that's absolutely right. You know, prepare, do everything right. You know, try your best to position whatever you're working on so that when you know the the wind starts to blow and when you know when the the, the, the cab driver is asking you about mining investments because you know that that the, yeah. the boom is on, um, that you're well positioned to do that. What I personally try to do with with the younger members of the team is just reinforce that look I've I've been here before. I started you know when I started my career it was at a low point very that looks very similar to this one and I've been through a few of these cycles. Um, I know that you know there are a set of ingredients that that you need in order to to persevere and make weather the storm. But I also know that once that 
that scenario set up properly, you know, to Marcel's point, it's it's only a spark, and then and then everything is off to the the, the races. Um, what's the uh, the uh, the expression that Robert Friedland used when you know when the wind blows, even the turkeys fly? <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of you know. We, we, Metaphorically, that's what you yeah. need to kind of set set up for it, and and maintain that morale within your organization by pointing to personal experiences, highs and lows. So let's you know we just talked about all the failures that can occur uh, and the likelihood of failure occurring, but you've been involved in six major takeouts, and you're you're just one guy. Most geologists are not even involved in one. So how what are the steps that you've taken? to expose yourself to these opportunities at a rate that is far greater than the average? Yeah, apart from the, the, the luck elements, I guess the, the other commonalities, if you will, um, relate to the people involved with those stories. You know, the, when, you know that, that perhaps overused uh, expression in the business, you know, people um, are as important as the assets that they're working on. I certainly believe that that's true. And if you look at all six of those those companies, they've always had one or two or more individuals that I could point to and say, look, if, if somebody's going to deliver a successful project or somebody's going to drive M&A, it's those individuals. And so that's always been sort of the key, the key elements. So I guess there, there needs to be that team in place so that should things work out geologically this the company has a chance at succeeding that's correct yes. there's the building blocks there to to get it done what needs to get done the soil has to be fertile before the seed is thrown on it there that's a better way to say it yeah <laughs> so we're coming up on an hour now um i guess i'd like to sort of wrap up sure. by talking about this has been great by the way oh thank you I, it's been very very valuable for me and a real pleasure but what I'd like to know is there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are just starting a new company or thinking about it or they're part of a small organization. How do you recommend that entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs and explorers in this industry keep growing and keep expanding their understanding and their education uh, as they progress through their careers? Is this a matter of you know, working with the right people, attending the right conferences, reading the right books. Is there ways that you've been able to expand your capabilities and knowledge base as you've gone along? Uh, process of elimination, it's not attending the right conferences. That tends to be, you know, everybody drinking from the same barrel of Kool-Aid. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't believe that that's, that's a, a direct driver of, of success. Uh, I really get back to the people aspects. You know, surround yourself with those people. Ally yourself with those those people who have a track record, um, who are honest, who have no ego, or very little ego. Sorry, I should say very little ego, because there's some element of ego that that uh, that's required to uh, to make success in our business. Um, but who are not ruled by ego, and um, I think those are those are key ingredients in order. To, you know, for for a young entrant into our business to to propel themselves. So if I'm a 25 year old mm-hmm. with a geology degree and maybe a couple field seasons under my belt, how do you how do you 
how do you do it? What do you do? Do you start reaching out to companies and building relationships or what would you do today? And that's a hard question and one that I don't know the answer to because it's it's not easy, but what do you do today in a shitty market in where shitty market, yes. there are less opportunities than capable people? Well, I can tell you what I did, if that's a guide. Um, during the really, you know, terrible downturns in the industry, you know, I, I uh, you know, I feel like I paid my dues by doing um, a lot of stuff that necessarily wasn't pleasant. I, you know, living in tents and yeah. and eating terrible food and you know having guns pointed at you and, and uh, things like that. But um, I wouldn't advocate anybody having a gun <laughs> pointed at them. By the way, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but you know, do do what you can to get that diverse experience in, and then once that's done. You know, you you've now set the stage for yourself to go on and to do the next thing, which is, you know, the the corporate stewardship of a of a company. You have a you now have a um, a bag of of tricks to 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 draw on, um, experience wise. That's key. Get the experience where you can, when you can. So I don't think um, my listeners will forgive me if I don't ask you when you had a gun pointed at you. Uh, it, it's happened twice to me, uh, both times in South America. Ah. Yes. On projects? On like projects, on the project? Yes. Yeah, I think it, that sort of thing happens more than people anticipate. Yeah, and it's humbling. Um, you know, and bo both instances, uh, you know, we were in places where we probably shouldn't have been. Mm. And, um, which is why you're not going to see me jumping on a plane to head to work in the jungles of South America, uh, probably for the rest of my career. That's why I'm very comfortable being in Idaho. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that people should know about George Salamis, about Integra Resources, about the work you guys are doing today, or, or anything else that you're involved in? Um, I know you were very instrumental in setting up the Disrupt Mining Challenge, and, and you care a lot about technology and you know the evolving space. What what would you like our listeners to know or to be aware of? I mean, it'd be easy for me to to throw in the promote of the asset and say you know we've got the best thing since sliced bread in, in, in the Western U.S. We've got a great asset, and that that will take care of itself ultimately. Um, I I'd love to throw it out there to to the um, you know the up and coming uh, mining CEOs. Uh, you know one thing that I that I've kept front and center in everything that I do is this this notion, and it, and it's it's a much overused Latin expression, illegitimate non carburandum, which is don't let the bastards grind you down. Essentially, you will spend the vast majority of your career with working with individuals uh, and groups who will try to, to grind you down. The oppressors will always be there. Just be aware of that and don't let them win. You know, persevere, get through that. There will be bright spots. Um, the downturn in the industry won't always be there, so set yourself up appropriately. You know, the negative individuals who will try and uh, intervene in M&A um, uh, situations, they will pop up and just don't give them the energy that they're that they're trying to feed off of and uh, if there's one thing that I would tattoo onto my wrist would be that statement all right George thanks for taking the time thank you Jamie and to everyone listening remember 
Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.